I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. And I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. Father, we again look to you by the ministry that only you can truly give us by your spirit to open our hearts, God, to your word, to all that you want to say, and that we would receive in faith, that we would believe, and Lord, that, that our hearts and lives would be brought into conformity to yourself. I pray, God, that we would truly hear and that you would minister to us as you know we need. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate Jerry Benjamin filling in last week for me. Um, Patsy and, and John Forrest and myself, we were all up in Colorado for some meetings there at one of our Torchbearer schools. It snowed almost the whole time. Uh, I'm very cold, so it is great to be back in Texas, even though we're having a little cool weather too. Um, also, you know, just um, it's a remarkable day today that we're commemorating with Veterans Day, and I appreciate all the men in this fellowship who are serving and have served, um, and what you do um, to to make your lives available um, to us as a population um, to this country. It was a hundred years ago that World War One came to an end, and I understand that that uh, the United States had 100,000 men um, who died in Europe in the course of that war. And they gave their lives um, for freedom, for the freedom of France, for the freedom of Europe, and also for our own country and our freedom. It was Patrick Henry who famously said, give me liberty or give me death. But it's an amazing thing that so many of our men and women over the years have given their lives for other people's liberty. Not coincidentally, I would imagine, the Lord knew that we would be in this passage here in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 that talks about Christian liberty and our freedoms. And it is one thing, and it is a virtuous thing to want people to live freely, and even to give your life for the freedom of others. It is another matter entirely to insist before God that we have our freedom and our liberty. So though Patrick Henry um, is to be commended, I believe, for saying, give me liberty or give me death, because he understood the importance of being able to live freely. Can you imagine uttering those words to God? Give me liberty or give me death. Guess what God's going to give you? (laughs) And that's what this section's about. And so here at the end of chapter 9, 
Paul is bringing um, some application to what he's been saying in chapters 8 and 9. You recall the last part of what we looked at before, verse 22 and 23. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. So Paul did not live for himself. So that's the problem here with this, with this teaching that we have so um, really strong in the New Testament of Christian liberty. Christian liberty was never meant that you can live for yourself. Paul says, I do not live for myself. I do everything I can to see people saved. Verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Not just to be a preacher of the gospel, that I might also become a fellow partaker of it. And what is the gospel? But that Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. If there was ever a person who had absolute freedom, it was Jesus. And he renounced his freedom, his liberty, and gave himself for us. He humbled himself and became a man and became obedient to the point of death. He did not live for himself. We would not be sitting here today rejoicing in our salvation if Jesus had lived for himself. He did not insist on his liberty and his rights. But he gave those up on our behalf. And so Paul says, I want to partake of that gospel. I don't want to just preach a gospel of the selfless Christ. I want to partake in the selfless Christ. And how can I preach the selflessness of Jesus while living for myself? That makes no sense whatsoever. It would be hypocrisy to preach the selfless gospel and live a self-centered life. I want to partake of what I'm preaching. And then that's why he says, as we just read, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? See, this is not a life of sitting on a couch and just you know, watching TV and drinking iced tea, which I like to do. This is not that kind of life. But it's a life of, of denying ourselves, not fulfilling ourselves. It's a race. Run in such a way that you may win. Whether it's a short race or a long marathon, you don't enter a race just for the fun of it. But you, even if you're just trying to, to, to improve your time, you're, you're, you're only competing against yourself. You still run purposefully. You train. Every athlete, whether it, he... His whole life is given to that pursuit of excellence in that sport. He counts every calorie. He looks at the time that he's putting in for exercising. His entire life is disciplined so that he might perform well. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control versus self-indulgence. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable we're not running just for what we can get in this life, but for the imperishable reward that is coming in the next life. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's a disciplined life. A life of self-control. A life where everything is brought into obedience to Jesus Christ. That is the direct opposite of a life of indulgence 
and thinking that because I'm saved, I can just do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. All my sins have been paid for. God loves me. Surely God wants me to be happy. This is a life that is yielded to the one who gave himself for us. How can we not yield every aspect of our being to the one who gave himself, himself for us? I buffet my body, not I buffet my body, <laughs> and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Thankfully, we don't know of any of the apostles who were disqualified. And I don't count Judas in that number. But of the 11 disciples, apostles, and then Paul, who also an apostle, church tradition, history tells us that none of those men disqualified themselves. They ran the race. And they finished well. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that we have a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, who have run the race, and they have finished well. We don't have to be disqualified in this life, but we can be. We can disqualify ourselves in the sense that the gospel message that we preach, our life does not bear witness to it. Our life can bear witness of self-indulgence, of absolutely being committed to our own fulfillment and our own happiness. And our life is not consistent with the message that we preach. So what? We're still saved, right? Well, that brings us to chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and now he's speaking of Israel in the wilderness, our fathers were all under the cloud, the cloud of God's Shekinah glory that followed them in the 40 years they were in the wilderness. Our fathers were all under the cloud, every one of them. All passed through the sea, the Red Sea, every one of them. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he gives five things that were true for Israel in the wilderness. They were all blessed by God. They had the presence of God signified in the cloud. God was with them. We too have the presence of God. They all passed through the sea. Now that's a picture of salvation. Because Egypt, they were delivered from Egypt. Now again, we were just talking about this in the adult Sunday school class from Hebrews chapter 3. We are not saying, the Bible never says that every man, woman, and child that came out of Egypt went to heaven. Okay, it doesn't say that. But the picture of coming out of Egypt is a picture of salvation. And this is why Israel was never permitted to go back to Egypt. Because to go back to Egypt would say that you could lose your salvation. And so you can die in the wilderness, or you can go to Canaan. But you cannot go back to Egypt. So those are the only choices. Die in the wilderness or go to Canaan, but you cannot go back to Egypt because you cannot lose your salvation. And being out of Egypt is a picture of being saved. That is not to say that every individual was saved. But the point is, here, by illustration, is that at least physically, these people were all saved physically from Egypt. Every one of them. They went through the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses. 
So this is talking about the spiritual leadership that God was giving him through this man. And by the way, this is a dry baptism, right? Because when they walked through the sea, not a single person got wet. And so we can argue till the cows come home about what is the appropriate form of baptism. We don't argue about it here because we just immerse. But, but most people don't know this, but I'll go on record to tell you that I've never been immersed. I've immersed a lot of people. Some of them I've held down longer than others. But <laughs> they've all let them up sooner or later. But I, I was baptized in a Presbyterian church. And I was only sprinkled in that church. But it was a believer's baptism. I got baptized because I wanted to testify to the fact that I knew I was a child of God. And I understood that baptism is a, is a portrayal of our identity with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I absolutely understood that when I got sprinkled. So I've had friends, particularly of the Baptist denomination, did my pastoral internship in a Baptist church, and when the Baptist pastor found out that I'd only been sprinkled, he just about had a coronary. And he was going, well, you got it, you got it, you, you, you've never been baptized. And I said, I have been baptized. I just didn't get as wet as you want me to be. <laughs> but I got baptized. And well, it wasn't a real baptism. And I said, it was a very real baptism. It was a communication that I belonged to Jesus Christ, and I was identifying publicly with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so he just, it just blew his mind. And so we had good fellowship, and it didn't cause us to divide, and I appreciate that. And then I found this passage years later and realized that this is a baptism that involved no water. Right? Nobody got wet. So how the church has made baptism about water and how wet you get, when Moses, all of Israel was baptized into Moses and nobody got wet, it just doesn't make sense to me. Baptism has always been about identification. And the point here is that when they walked through that Red Sea, they were identifying themselves with Moses. They were baptized into Moses. And baptism today is about our identity with Jesus Christ. They all ate the same spiritual food, which was manna from heaven. Jesus tells us in John 6 that he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven. That he has another bread that, doesn't, that is not like the bread of Moses, but this bread is a, is a spiritual bread. Jesus is the bread that the Old Testament was pointing to. And all drank from the same spiritual drink. That drink was water that came from a rock. And we are told that that rock was Christ. It was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you can see that these five things that were true of Israel pointed to what is true of us. Each of these things was a symbolic reference to what is true for the person who places his faith in Jesus Christ. All five of these things, just as Israel was extremely blessed, we have been extremely blessed. It's amazing what God has given us. Amazing. We have his presence. We have, we have his salvation. We have his leading. We, have his, we eat and drink of Christ. Everything that we need has been accomplished for us through faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. 
which is obviously euphemistic language for they died. Okay? Physically saved, but they died physically. Okay? Just Old Testament is just about the physical there of Israel. Physically they were saved, and physically they died. The application he's going to make here is, is spiritually we are saved, and physically we could die, just like Israel did. If we live saying, give me my liberty or give me death, beware. Because God could very well give you death. That kind of sentiment when expressed toward God, I know my rights. I know my freedoms. Who are you, speaking of some person, you know, who are you, his hill, to tell us students that we can or cannot? Rah, 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 rah. And that almost never happens at his hill, so I'm being facetious. Beware. We do it all the time in our hearts. We refuse to lay aside our liberties. We insist on our rights. We don't want to submit. We don't want to come under. And we put ourselves in grave danger. Because that kind of attitude and disposition is absolutely contrary to the spirit of Christ. God was not well pleased, and they died. Now these things happened, in case we missed the point, as examples for us. That we, now he's going to give five examples of these same people who were so blessed, delivered from Egypt, living in the presence of God, Five instances, five blessings that he's listed, now five instances where God struck them down and people died. The first, they craved evil things. This would be from Numbers 11, verses 4 to 34. You know what they craved that was so evil? Meat. Guilty. <laughs> I like my meat. Pick me up from the airport, take me to Bill Miller's, because I haven't probably had any meat while I've been traveling, very little. I like my meat. Satish John comes here from India, and the one thing he craves is a good, thick ribeye, because he can't get them in India. He craves that ribeye. What a sinner, I'm telling you. <laughs> Israel craved evil things. And the evil things they happened to crave in that context was meat. And God sent them quail. And so they ate so much quail, the scripture says, they were vomiting it out of their noses. And then at the end of the passage it says, and God struck down many of them. We forget that part. He gave them what they wanted. Psalms speaks to that situation and says, and sent leanness into their souls. They got what they wanted and had leanness come into their souls. And many of them were struck down by God. What kind of evil things do Christians crave? Something that you want, which in itself may not in fact be evil. But God is withholding it. Because what makes it evil? I want it. See, the craving is evil. It's not that I'm craving something that is evil. The craving is evil. It's becoming idolatrous. 
I'm wanting something that God is not giving in my whole life. My whole mind is focused on getting what I can't have. It might be more money. It might be marriage. It might be health. It could be just to have some vacation time. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it's to be loved. Maybe to be recognized. There is nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But the craving for those things can be an evil craving. If I am not surrendered as Jesus was surrendered, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He did not clutch. He did not cling to these things. He wasn't craving. Can you imagine if Jesus every day had been walking around on earth going, oh, when can I go back to heaven? When can I go back to heaven? You never see that. He delighted in doing the will of God and everything around him was wrong. And he didn't just say, when can I die and go to heaven? I wonder if he had lived just saying, God, when's it going to be over? God, when can I go to heaven? If that would not have been an evil craving. It's a good thing to desire to depart and be with the Lord. Nothing wrong with that desire. But if it becomes something that I must have, and I won't be, any desire that, that comes to the point that I have to have it and I won't be satisfied until I have it, if it's anything other than Jesus himself, it's an evil craving. Jesus said, Paul said in Philippians, that is the one thing he wanted was to lay hold of Christ and all that he had been laid hold for. His master ambition was just Jesus, the one desire. It also says that they were idolaters, verse 7, and do not be idolaters as some of them were. Can a Christian be an idolater? Obviously, Paul is saying yes. You can be saved and be an idol worshiper. I wish, I mean, scripture is just not complicated. You can be saved. Let not you become idolaters. You can be saved and be worshiping an idol. This is the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. The first is, have no other gods before me. The second is, make no image. Do not fashion an idol. And they did. This would be the case of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. And once again, it says that, that after Aaron, I mean, sorry, Moses came down from Mount Sinai and saw what Aaron had permitted, that Moses said to, um, to some of the Levites, strap on your swords. And they walked through the congregation of Israel, cutting people down because of their idolatry. So it wasn't a direct plague from God in that case, but nonetheless... Moses was doing the will of God when they put their swords on and they walked through the congregation of Israel just mowing them down. Idolatry is serious business. 
And again, if there's something in my life as a Christian that I have to have to make me happy, and I'm unwilling to let go of, and I cannot be happy without this thing, that thing is an idolater, an idol in my life. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. Christians can be guilty of immorality. That goes without saying. Numbers 25.1, it says that the daughters of Midian came into the camp and gave themselves sexually to the men of Israel. And they acted immorally. And God sent a plague through Israel. And 23,000 fell in one day. We can be guilty of craving what God has not given. And it is an evil craving. We can be guilty of idolatry. And we can be guilty of immorality. Verse 9 nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the serpents. Once again, they were complaining about the food. And God got tired of the complaining, and he sent deadly snakes among them. And Moses fashioned a bronze serpent and raised it up, and all anybody had to do to be healed from the snake bites was look at the bronze serpent. Many refused to, and they died. They tried God in their complaints, not about persecution, not about disease, ill health, but merely the food. And God killed many of them. Nor let us, this is the fifth thing, grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Korah and his friends instigated a rebellion against Moses and said, we've got as much of the Spirit as you do, and we should be able to be equal with you. It is our right. And God killed him, opened up the ground, and the ground swallowed him, and he died. But there were others who complained about that. At least 250 leaders that followed Korah. Numbers 16, verse 41. And they all died as well. In every one of these instances, these are people who said, what is wrong with asking, demanding for food and water? What is wrong with wanting to have different leadership? What is wrong with wanting to be satisfied Sexually. What is wrong? And the whole focus was on themselves and their rights, their needs. And their lives were a contradiction to the selfless one who gives his life for you and me. And the application here couldn't be plainer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's usually a reference to judgment. We're living in the end times, Paul was saying. And if the Israelites needed to be cautious and circumspect in their attitudes before God, how much more we should be. 
One person pointed out a progression of thought in these five warnings. It began with a desire and, and is applying this to the Corinthian situation. Remember, the Corinthians are going, why can't we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul was saying, you can, but you better be careful. So the first of these warnings, desire for meat. The second, in the context of idolatry. See how this parallels the Corinthians. Desire for meat in the context of idolatry, which was their pagan worship feast, which involved immorality, and all of that was stemming from dissatisfaction with the present situation of restrictions, and it was predicated upon too high of a regard for self and one's liberties and rights, and it ends with the death of the strong. So who is it exactly that insists upon their rights and their liberties when it comes to the church? It's the strong brother, not the weak brother. It's the strong brother who knows he has the right and he has the liberty. And Paul's very clearly saying, you better be careful. Because that insistence upon what you know is your right is in itself contrary to the spirit of Christ. And it could cost you your life. Therefore, verse 12, and I want you to read this carefully, thinking of the context we've just looked at. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, let him who thinks he is safe, let him who thinks that he is immune from God's discipline, take heed lest he fall. And in this context, it's lest he what? Die. That's what this is all about. Remember back in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they what? They were laid low in the wilderness. They fell. They died. All five of the examples that Paul lists, someone dies. Many people die. And that's why now this, this forceful, powerful application in verse 12, if you think you are immune from God's discipline. Take heed, lest you die. Our salvation is not in question. I absolutely believe we are secure in our salvation. When Paul said in Romans 5, we stand in the grace of God, he meant that that grace will never be removed. But he did not at all mean that we are immune from God's loving discipline. When I was in elementary school, um, they still spanked children, and I think that was a good thing. And of all the teachers in the elementary school, we only had one man teacher, Mr. Dyke. And we feared Mr. Dyke. He had this massive college ring on his hand. And whenever you were out of line, he would just kind of walk up to you and smile and just go, and hit you with that ring. And after the dizziness went away, you straightened up. He typically didn't have to pop you twice. Amazing how effective that ring was. One Saturday, um, I went up to the school with some of my buddies on our bicycles, and, and there was no better place to ride your bicycle than on the open breezeways of that elementary school. 
just felt like you could go faster. And so we love riding those breezeways and skidding and leaving black tread marks on the breezeways and coming around the corners. Well, little did we know the teachers were having some kind of meeting that Saturday. And out of one of the classrooms as we came by came Mr. Dyke. And he grabbed hold of the handlebars on my bike. And my best friend was on the bike with me. He goes, what are you boys doing? You know you're not supposed to be on the breezeway. Whop, whop. <laughs> See you on Monday, boys. <laughs> and our, our heads rang and throbbed till we got home. Sometimes I think, I wonder, as, as serious as death is, and I don't want to, I'm not making fun of that, in God's economy, could we say, how could God kill people that he loves? Eternity is a long time. And this life on earth is a real short time. And because our life is hidden with God in Christ, and it cannot be taken from us, I wonder if death in God's economy is nothing more than a whop on the head with a big college class ring. Straighten up. But we need it. We think, death, how could God kill somebody? But I can understand that teacher just giving us a whop on the head. Hurt. Didn't like it. Straightened us up. But it was just a whop. And God's prepared to whop us. And it may mean death. I can't judge why someone has died. And that's a caution with this passage. We can't say that premature death is always a consequence of God's discipline. But neither can we say that it's never a consequence of God's discipline. Sometimes it is. God is prepared to take his children home if they live in such a way that their very life contradicts Jesus Christ. Not just contradicts the message of the gospel, the words of the gospel, but the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. When I am living a self-consumed life, and I have been saved by the selfless one, I put myself in danger of the discipline of God. No temptation. This is his next application, verse 13. What am I supposed to do? We live in a world where there's, there's lots of temptations. Amen. Oswald Chambers says that there has never been a person more tempted than Jesus Christ was. And yet without sin. Because the scripture says that he was tempted in every manner in which a man can be tempted. But he did not sin. So Chambers makes the point that the more yielded you are, because Jesus was absolutely yielded, the more yielded you are, the more tempted you will be. I think that makes sense. God's not tempting us. Scripture is very clear. God does not tempt. Jesus was tempted a lot, more than anyone, because he, he lived the most yielded life of anyone. And he didn't sin. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. It's not unique. Well, you go, man, I'm, I'm just, you know, all the pity parties start coming, right? You don't know how hard life is. You don't know what I'm going through. God says, really? I know exactly what you're going through. I was tempted more than you have ever thought about being tempted. 
Every temptation that we will ever go through is common to humanity. We are not unique cases. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So if there's temptation, God is providing the ability not to yield to the temptation, whatever it is. So there's no excuses. So it's not exceptional, and there are no excuses, because God always provides the way of escape. You will not be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape. It doesn't say a way. It says the way. Sometimes the way is just to put on your track shoes and run. That's what Joseph did, right? Just ran. I read an illustration of a little boy that was um, wanting some cookies that his mother had baked. And he knew the cookies were in the cookie jar in the pantry. And so he went into the pantry and closed the door behind him. And mother walked into the kitchen and she heard the cookie jar rattling in the pantry. And she called out to her son and said, Jimmy, are you in the pantry? And he said, yes. And she said, what are you doing? as he has his hand in the cookie jar. And he says, I'm fighting temptation. (laughs) Should have never gone in the pantry. Sometimes resisting temptation is nothing more than don't put ourselves in the situation where we know we're going to be tempted. Because we know. Then don't, don't put yourself there. Sometimes we have no control. No control whatsoever over the temptation. But even then, God always provides the way of escape. And ultimately, the way is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no circumstance that you could find yourself in. If you had nothing to do with putting yourself in that circumstance, and the temptation comes... Jesus himself is the way. And you can be there and not sin. Jesus lived in complete dependence upon his father. And the devil threw at him everything that he had. And he didn't sin. And the scripture says that if we abide in Christ, we will not sin. Ultimately, the way of escape is Jesus himself. The person who abides in Christ cannot, while abiding, sin. That's what 1 John says. You cannot abide in Christ and at the same time sin. He is the way of escape. And you can endure whatever that temptation is. So here are some lessons. These things have been written for our instruction, Paul says. They aren't folklore. They aren't Sunday school stories. They aren't fable. They are warnings to be heeded. The Israelites died, and so can we. Sin while under grace is worse than sin while under the law. Because, see, we have Jesus, and we can live 
in Christ. We do not have to sin. It is not law that controls us. It is Christ who controls us. And to sin against Christ is serious, serious business. To think that one stands is to think that one is safe due to God's grace in our position in Christ. To fall is to die. And we can die. We are saved, but God can discipline us to the point of death. God is aware of our temptation. And he tells us that temptation is common to all men, so there can be no pity parties. He says that God is faithful, and there are no exceptions. God is not faithful to one person and unfaithful to another. Whatever the temptation is, God is faithful to you to get you out of it. God always provides the way of escape, so there are no excuses. The Holy Spirit always warns us. This passage is telling us that all can endure, and the endurance is is the opposite of dying. We don't need to die. We can endure. There is no need to have to be put to death. The problem is not that there is no way out, is that rather we often look for a way to stay in. I have no, thankfully, experience with um, severe addiction. Don't think I do, at least. Some would say I'm addicted to sweet tea, but I'm not. But to be serious, drug addiction, alcoholism, my heart is very empathetic to those Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are recovering, as they would describe themselves, recovering alcoholics or recovering drug addicts. And I, I know way too many instances of people with that in their background who have relapsed and who have overdosed. They've died. I am tempted to think, because it is so common for Christians with alcohol and drug abuse in their background, it is so common for them to relapse and even overdose. I am very tempted to think that this passage doesn't apply to them. That would be a deception. There is no temptation except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He provides the way of escape. There is no temptation which is beyond what we can endure in Jesus Christ. So you begin to see how uncompromising the truth is. This isn't just for those who are tempted to say a bad word on occasion. Those who are tempted to get a little irritable on occasion. There is no sin that we can free ourselves from. But there is no sin which Jesus is not able to free us from. None. I don't know how we could read this passage 
and take it as God's word and say that there is an exception. There are no exceptions. I've told you the story, but it maybe bears repeating. When a, a friend of mine was in a drug and alcohol um, treatment center, and I and some of his friends were called in for three days to be a part of the recovery program, all the men and women who run that program had two things in common. They were all Christians, and they were all formerly alcoholics. And so they could talk to us in ways that I could never have said. And I'm just thinking a perpetual weakness that we need to bear with this person in their weakness. They call that codependency. And these people, mincing no words, said, there is nothing you can do for us. And you are not helping us by trying to help us. Until we are so desperate that we cry out to Jesus, there is nothing anybody can do for us because Jesus is the only one that can help us. Isn't that how we got saved to begin with? So why do we think that the rest of life is any different? So these are people who are saying, don't make excuses for us. We know what we're capable of, and we know how low we can get. And until we get there and cry out to Jesus, there is nothing anybody can do because Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the way of escape. I didn't like hearing that. And see, this is why we don't even label things sin anymore. We just call them addictions and diseases. I don't even see that in Scripture. Paul's saying it's a temptation to sin. And God is faithful, who will always provide the way of escape. And God's word is true. Am I craving what God seemingly refuses to give? Am I toying with idolatry? Is there something in my life that I will not give up in devotion to him? Is there immorality in my life? Am I out of sync with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit. Is there unholiness in my life? Am I living a life of yieldedness and of bringing everything into captivity to Jesus Christ? Or is it a life of self-indulgence? Am I trying God, testing God, by my constant grumbling and complaining? Or am I giving thanks? Am I partaking of the gospel or just preaching the gospel? And again, not all premature death is because of divine discipline. We are blessed. We have great liberty in Christ. We have been set free from sin and its dominion. We are privileged people. But we need to understand that Jesus is still God. We aren't. He is master. 
and we are slave. He is Lord, and we are his people. And he takes seriously that the salvation that he offers to us is actually reflected in our lives. A selfless life. Not committed to self, but giving up of self in devotion to him. Would you want it any other way? This is actually good news. Because we are the children of God, and God loves us as his children, he disciplines us. And I thank the Lord that he loves us enough to do so. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, this has been, um, again, another sobering passage of Scripture. But it is also a blessing and an encouragement. It is affirming and comforting to know that you love us enough to give your Son to die for us. And you love us enough to give us the discipline that we need, even if it should be unto death with our best interest in mind, seeking to preserve the soul, even through the means of destruction of the flesh. God, we don't want to move off into thinking that we are not right with you because we are positionally in Christ. And we don't want to condemn ourselves, Lord, when there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I thank you, God, that in your discipline of us, you don't just give a vague sense of guilt. But you are always very precise. You tell us when something's wrong. You tell us exactly what we need to turn from. And we're grateful for that. So, Lord, we just don't want to fall victim to the enemy here and think that um, we are guilty and condemned Guilty in the sense of just that vague sense of we're not right with you. But Lord, where we are wrong and have broken fellowship and where you are displeased, we trust you and ask you, God, to put your finger on that. And we thank you that you will. And that you will correct us as, as we need and it always be with precision. Thank you that you are God who has offered salvation and who is also bringing us into conformity with the Savior. It is because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.